Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast, and I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. Uh, and sometimes, if I'm being honest, I wonder if I'm really an adult. <laughs> it's true. Uh, despite my wife of nine years, my two children, and my ever-increasing number of gray hairs, I often feel that I'm not that far removed from my time as a college student or even in high school. And then I realized two things. The first is that the things that I most want to do are the exact same things that used to be my punishments when I was a kid. I just want to clean the house. Or failing that, at least let me clean all of the dishes. Would someone please just take my phone away from me for the entire weekend? These are things that I really want to do. And secondly, a thing that reminds me that I am actually an adult is the old aphorism of how great it is to have a place for everything and to put everything in its place. Today in Isaiah 44 and 45, God is going to give that to us today. He's going to remind us of the place that all of creation has. And he will set everything in its rightful place. From nature to sin, from Israel to foreign kings. And then he will compare all of it to his rightful place as Lord of all. And the more that I mature in the Lord, the more I find comfort in this fact. As I become an adult, I appreciate this fact about the Lord. It is absolutely good that everything has its place and that it is all under the authority of God. We'll start today in Isaiah 44, 21 through 28 which if you have one of the church Bibles is the very last sentence on page 390. And I want you to see how God sets all of creation in its place. Then in Isaiah 45, 1 through 8, God will make it clear that he alone chooses his tools and he puts them in their place. And in Isaiah 45, 9 through 13, God puts the proud in their rightful place. And finally, Isaiah 45, 14 through 19, God recaps and he puts himself in his rightful place over all of creation. So let's jump right in and consider how God sets all of creation in its place as we read Isaiah 44, 21 through 28. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, 
who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In some of the passages that we read, we see a slow buildup in dramatic tension where God reveals his power little by little until we reach a climax. Well, not so in this passage. God jumps right out of the gate and puts sin in its place. Read again Isaiah 44, 21 and 22. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. My friends, we struggle with sin. God does not struggle with sin. He doesn't even struggle with the sin that we commit. He blots it out. So what is our role? Where does God's rightful order then leave us? Well, here God gives two imperatives. Remember and return. Remember these things, O Jacob, and return to me, for I have redeemed you. If God created us and he has power even over our sin, then what we desperately need to do is to never forget. And then to run away from that sin and to run back to him. And he has the power to make that a reality in your life. Sin does not scare God. If we run to him, his son has already paid the price and he can blot it out. So Grace Fellowship Church, remember and return. This has been who God is from when Isaiah was written and it is who he is today. Don't let sin hold a place in your life. It doesn't belong there. Only God belongs there. From there, God addresses all of nature. Look at verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Not only is the spiritual under God's authority, he also made the heavens and the earth and he can do what he likes with them. All of nature is put in its place under the feet of God. How about man? 
It sure seems like we do a pretty good job of ruining God's plans. Look at all the strife and the liars, the manipulators who have their own way with the weak and who seem to flaunt all justice. Are they outside of God's order, out of his authority? Nope. Look at verse 25, which says that God is the one who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. How about what Israel experienced? Near genocide, slavery, political unrest. Are these things out of God's reach? Verse 26, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. And verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. My friends, none of this is above God. And God puts all of it in its place. So what do you fear? What could frustrate God's plans for you? His plans for the world. It's not sin. It's not natural disaster. It's not heaven or earth. It's not liars or manipulators. None of it could frustrate God's plan. Romans eight thirty eight and 39 says it like this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And earlier in Romans 8... Paul makes the same argument that he is doing, that we see Isaiah doing throughout this, these verses. Romans 8, 8 3, 18 through 22 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So all of creation is in its place. Waiting for God's glory to be revealed through his people. Amen. Amen. So let's look at Isaiah 45, 1 through 8, and see God make it clear that he alone will choose who his servants will be and that they will serve his purposes. Isaiah 45, 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. 
I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Here God launches into a description of his instrument of salvation for his people. And it is not what God's people would expect to hear. They're about to be coming out of exile. And God says that the instrument of his salvation is Cyrus, who is the king of a foreign pagan nation. This is being, this man is being called God's anointed. That's absurd. A foreign unbeliever is going to rescue God's people? Why not raise up another Moses? He was a Hebrew, one of God's people. Or raise up another King David. Or a judge like Gideon or Samson. God, why not raise up anyone who makes sense? Verses 3 through 6 tell us why. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you. Though you do not know me, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no, beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Amen. So why does God raise up Cyrus? Well, it's for three reasons. He wants his people to know of his faithfulness. He wants Cyrus himself to know that he alone, Yahweh, is God. And he wants the world to know that he alone is God. This is God's plan. And to us, it's crazy. No one is going to understand this plan. Israel and Judah aren't going to understand it. Even Cyrus, who is the anointed one, isn't going to get it. Verses 4 and 5 make it clear that Cyrus doesn't even know who God is. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, 
There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. And yet he is the one that God calls by name. What is God trying to do? He's setting everything in its place. Sin and nature, heaven, earth, and even those who do not know him. All of it is under his authority. And so he can, comp- he can accomplish the impossible. He can even do what it says in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Salvation and righteousness are as much under God's control as is the rain and the crops. So my friends, how does this impact us? It frees us from the need to understand God's plan. If we know who God is, then we can trust that his plans are good, even when they don't make sense to us. How can God use tragedy? How can loss accomplish life? How can disaster or death ever be redeemed for his plan? I don't know. But I know that they can when all of them are put in their rightful place under the authority of God. God can and will use light and darkness. He will use... Uh, sorry, <laughs> I lost my place. He will use light or darkness. He will use well-being and he will use calamity. He will use whatever means he chooses to accomplish his goals. And those goals, again, are in verses 4 and 6. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen. And that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none Besides me, I am the Lord, and there is no other. And church, let me remind you of another one of God's plans that didn't make sense to us. A plan that was prophesied in this very book in Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders... And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. Jesus, God's own son, was born as a human child, destined to be reviled and then crucified so that he could pay the penalty for our sins, making a way for all of sinful man to re-enter a relationship with the most holy God. This is what Vadim was talking about. And this plan doesn't make sense 
But it's what God did to save his people and to make himself known, not just to a few, but to the entire world. And yet, because God's plans don't make sense so often to us, we criticize. We strive to take control away from God's plan so that we can follow our own plan. Despite infinite proof to the contrary, we still think that our own understanding is complete and that our own way is best. Let's read Isaiah 45, 9 through 13, where God puts those of us who do this in our rightful place. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their host. So God anticipates the objections that he knows his people will have about his plan. Um, God, I, sorry to tell you this, but your plan, it's no good. You probably didn't realize this, but Cyrus, he isn't a good guy. He doesn't even know you. So you should probably do things a little bit differently. God puts these objections in their place with three analogies. First, in verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, Your work has no handles. Do you hear how ridiculous that that sounds? You're like a clay pot that I, God, made. You're looking around at all the other pots that I made, and you remind me in your great wisdom and experience that I should make you more like some other different pot that I also made. It's ridiculous. And the second and the third analogies are in verse 10. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Honestly, these objections that you have made to God's plan aren't just ridiculous. They're offensive. You're like a child or an infant belittling his own father or mother, mocking him for somehow making him wrong, mocking the care and the suffering and the love with which he was made. The problem here, my friends, is pride. We honestly think that we know better than God. Because we know that we are God's children, and we know that he loves us, we somehow think that that means we know the right way that our lives should go. We say, like Israel, you can't send us into captivity, or 
It can't be your plan to raise up Cyrus as our deliverer. That doesn't make sense. To which God responds with verses 11 and 12. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I command all their host. My friends, God alone knows the future and he knows how each of our lives fit into his eternal plan of salvation. And yet we want to take it away. We want our plan to reign. Forget God's plan. Let us have ours because we want handles. And this is easy to apply, but it's uncomfortable. God knows the purposes of our lives better than we do. But isn't it my life? No, it's God's life. He made you. And church, let me confess my pride here before you. I think I know how my life should go. I'm all smiles when things are going how they should. But what about when my students don't turn in the work that's their responsibility and I have to hunt them down again and again to remind them to do their job? Or what about when I go home and I expect that I can just sit calmly so that I can rest and decompress, but instead I need to discuss behavior and heart issues? In those moments, I often respond with entitlement with indignation, expecting that things should go the way I want them to go. And that's pride. And it offends God. Will you command God concerning his children and the work of his hands? We are God's children. And so he is in charge of our lives. Are you God's child? Does he love you? Then why do you think that you can command your life? Do you make your agenda an idol? Do you sacrifice everything to it? Friends, time, money, thoughts, all sacrificed for your agenda. Friends, we're still talking about idols. You thought this chapter in Isaiah was going to be the one that wasn't about idols. Well, it is. (laughs) God is putting the idol of pride In its place. Friends, don't put your expectations above God's plan. So in Isaiah 44, 21 through 28, we have seen God put creation in its place. Then in Isaiah 45, 1 through 8, we've seen God choose his tools and put them in their place. In verses 9 through 13, we've seen God put the proud in their place. All that is missing is the final piece. Where does God fit himself in? Let's read Isaiah 45, 14 through 19, where God takes his rightful place over all of creation. I have stirred him up, that's Cyrus, in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price, Or reward, says the Lord of hosts. 
The Lord, the only Savior. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. After setting all of these things in their rightful place, he reiterates at the beginning of these verses what he will do. God reminds his people of the reason that he is, or what he is doing using Cyrus. He is using him for salvation and for the blessing of his people. Verses 13 and 14a say, I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. Not for reward or price, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. So the what is the salvation of his people and moreover the blessing of them. But the why is so much more powerful. Look again at verses 14b through 17. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. There is no other, no God besides him. Truly you're a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded for all eternity. So what is the why of God's plan? Why is he using Cyrus? Why did he allow his people to go into exile in the first place? It's so that the Persians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Cushites and the Sabaeans might say, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Why does God save and bless his people? Because that is who he is. And that's exactly what no idol, be it Baal or our own pride, could ever do. 
God's plan is bigger than salvation from a foreign nation. It is salvation for all of the foreign nations. And that's us. We could go even one step further and ask, why does God even care about showing these other nations who he is? Wasn't it enough that he had his people? No, it's not even close. Because his rightful place is above all of it. Verses 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. So to summarize, God's plan of salvation and redemption for Israel has done more than the people experiencing it could have hoped or imagined. This plan even puts sin in its place, and it leads all of creation to glorify God. But to us, this plan doesn't make sense from our earthly perspectives. God uses unlikely tools to accomplish his glorious plan. He does so because he is revealing his glory in an astounding, even unbelievable way. But lest we rise up in our pride and we belittle God's plan, he reminds us that he is God, the creator of all things, men and nations. And so we see that all of these are beneath him because he is the Lord. There is no other.